All right, uh, so this is our time together when we look into God's Word and try to hear from uh, what God has for us. And we're looking at uh, the Psalms of Ascent, a certain section of the Psalms. And as we look into the Psalms, we actually see the full gamut of human emotions are really covered throughout these. And what our time together is going to be about is trying to understand clearly and accurately what this text is saying, but also I'm really hoping that we can feel this text as the Psalms are meant to emotively meet us where we're at. So in our time together, we're going to unpack this so we have hopefully a good understanding when we walk away, but also that you hopefully have some theological guidance to help you as you have feelings and emotions in our day-to-day life, that this is a text that you can go back to and rely on time and again. So as I've been praying for many of you by name this week, I'm going to just uh, pray once more together as we look into God's Word from Psalm 123. God, I thank you for the chance to open your word. I pray that you would speak to us in this time, God, that we would know you better. And God, you would help us to feel these deep words uh, that you've preserved for us. In your name, amen. So I don't know if you're like a big Uber user or Lyft or Fasten or if you just use regular old taxis from time to time. I would probably identify myself as uh, an Uber fan, but I also take a ton of just regular old taxis. And as I get in these situations, it really doesn't matter if you've used one or the other, you actually end up with a pretty similar experience. Yes, wait, believe, me or, believe it or not, you actually do end up with a pretty similar experience. You end up in the back of the car, and you are at complete mercy of wherever this driver is going to take you. So now, I live in suburban Melrose now. I don't take a ton of Uber and, and taxis from now, from this spot. But sometimes for my day job, traveling abroad, vacations, that kind of thing, I find myself in, in cars and... Uh, usually it's just a regular old taxi somewhere around the world. And when I get in there, I have the same sense every time. I'm like, oh boy, here we go again. You get in the car, you tell them what's going to happen, and we see kind of where, where is this going to go next, okay? So I've had some pretty interesting drivers along the way. Uh, sometimes I've, I've gotten uh, into a lot of trouble trying to figure out, is this a legitimate taxi, or is this not at all like a taxi driver? In some parts of the world, it's really tough to tell. And you can have a very different experience, depending on which one you get in, as well as Bill. Uh, The second thing, I've I've been sometimes uh, with a driver who's very, very hard of hearing. In London, I was there and tried to tell this guy 16 times where our hotel was, till we finally saw he had this little sign that said, I'm a little hard of hearing, please speak up. I went, are you serious? Like, I don't know if I'm ever going to get home. How How do I work this situation out? Uh, one other time, Katie and I were, were at a, in a taxi, and believe it or not, this driver could not read. He, he couldn't read English, he couldn't read his native language, and he was actually a little bit befuddled with the concept of reading a map. So as I pulled out a map and tried to show him the streets and go there, he was like, I don't know, I'm going to have to call somebody and, and see what happens. So he, he got us there in the end. But there's always these interesting moments when you say, I am at complete mercy of this driver. It doesn't even happen abroad. I mean, Katie and I were coming home uh, from South Station a, a couple years ago, and we were trying to get from South Station to Davis Square, and we got in the taxi, and the driver, uh, I guess, looked at us and went, this is going to go good. I'm going to take these guys for a ride. So not an con- incredibly long ride from South Station to Davis Square we were at the time, but he decided to take us around the sites of the city and keep running up this meter. After a few minutes of realizing he passed our stop, I mean, I sort of voiced my dissatisfaction with him a little bit. Let him know, what are you doing? You've totally taken the wrong way. You're costing us a lot of money. Don't you know we're from here? What what are you doing? This is ridiculous. And then uh, at that point, I kind of pause and go, okay, I'm still at this guy's mercy, to be honest. I'm in the car. We could be going for hours if I don't watch what I'm doing here in this moment. 
uh, he's pretty upset. It's three or four in the morning. I just want to go home. So finally, I have this palpable sense that I just need to let this go and trust that this guy is going to work this out for us and put myself under his mercy. What's kind of that palpable awareness of mercy that we have in this psalm that Eric just read for us. This idea of ringing in our ears that we are so in need of mercy. Just like you sit in the back of a car, whether Uber or a taxi, and you feel like there is, there is no way this is going to work out well. I'm completely behind this driver. So this psalm talks about our need of mercy to that same extent. So we're going to look at this Psalm 123 and look for two key questions today that we're going to answer. First of all, who do we turn to for mercy? And secondly, why do we crave or need this mercy so badly? So it's just four simple verses here that we come into. The first two verses really answer for us that first question. What is, who is the source of our mercy? Who do we go to to receive it? So you see in that first verse, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. So the, the psalmist writes that he's lifting up his eyes to the position of God. God is high. Not only does this reflect uh, the understanding of heaven's location, but also of the transcendent holiness of God. Now, you can't be around Seven Mile Road for any service, really, without us either talking or singing about the holiness of God. It's constantly on our lips, constantly on our minds. So it's fundamentally important that you understand what we're talking about when we talk about the holiness of God. There's really two parts to it. First of all, there's God's moral or ethical perfection when we talk about holiness. This is the idea that God is completely sinless. He never does wrong. He in no way seeks evil. All of his ways are perfect. Then there's also the second way, which is what comes out here a little bit in this passage. When we think of God's holiness, it's not only that moral perfection, it's also what we call his majestic transcendence, that God is so far above us and different than we are. There is no one like God. There is no point in our lives when we are like God in the way that he is. There's always a distinction between us as his creatures and him as the creator. So when we think about what that looks like, we know that God has the right and the authority to do things that we would never have the right or authority to do. God has the power, the ability to do things that we will never be able to do. And that talks about his place as our holy God who is transcendently different from where we are. As you look at the passage in the second part of verse 1, it talks about him as one who is being enthroned in the heavens or sometimes taken as just seated in the heavens. So we have kind of in this some almost anthropomorphic language that's coming up. And what I mean by that is God is so different from us that we have to use like human stuff to try to talk about what God is like. So I just said God is not like us at all, but the best way sometimes for the Bible to describe to us what God is like is to take comparisons with us, ways that we're sort of similar. And in this case, we're seeing that God is sort of presented as seated, in a seated position. Now, it's not like God is standing around all day, suddenly he gets tired, and he's looking for that big chair that's called his throne, and he's going to sit back and kick his feet up at the end of the day. That's not at all what he's pointing to. The idea is that God, the sovereign over the universe, is in a position of authority. All of the worlds, including the earth, And all of this country and all of the countries around the world sit at his feet, that he is over that as a transcendent God who is the king of this universe. So as it tries to explain that to us, it can't help but make that clear to us in human terms. And we can be grateful. This is God telling us a way to think about him. He's so beyond our thinking that he has to point to things that we can sort of get a feel for. 
okay, we have some understanding of kingliness. We have some idea of authority. So that must be somewhat what God is like. So the psalmist turns his eyes upward to think this is the God that I'm pointing to. This is the God I'm praying out to, singing to in this psalm to say, this God is high and he is enthroned and this is who I'm turning to. But then secondly, in verse 2, we see more about who this person is that we turn to in mercy and describes him as one that we are truly dependent on. If you look in verse 2, you have kind of a a set-up triplet of, of comparison here. It says, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. So if God is high and enthroned, then it comes as no surprise that we would be dependent on him, right? I mean, if he's that great, it makes sense that we would be under that and have need from him. So the psalmist tries to find, again, human ways to try to describe this to us to understand this, and he gives us kind of this, this triplet of comparison. Uh, it has kind of the word behold there, and then you can kind of see in, in your English text, he lays out kind of these, each of these phrases start with as, as, so. And he's building his point. In the Hebrew, this is alliterated, some beautiful artistry that's happening. But you can see it preserved for us in just kind of that succession of words. So he's saying, okay, you know how men servants look to their master. It's where they're going. And then even mistress, they have to look to their, uh, excuse me, handmaidens need to look to their mistress for their authority. So it's the same way with us and God. We are that dependent upon him. Now, most of us have no real experience with the world of service, right, and, and that whole world. Probably Downton Abbey is probably some of our closest access to what that's like. And that's not really even still the full extent of what it looks like in the ancient Near East of this time period. The idea would be that the master was the sole source of life and death for the servant. The one without which they, could, they would either starve, die, or flourish all came from the hand of this master. So from a U.S. concept, the closest I can get for what we may feel like this is you think about the people who work for the president. We have the phrase of, I serve at the pleasure of the president, right? So all these really important secretaries and aides and people who have really powerful careers and lots of smarts that they can draw from, there's still this understanding that our president can just at a whim dismiss any of them. All of our presidents have been that way and been able to dismiss them because they serve at the pleasure of this president. Nothing to do with their competence. Nothing to do with their abilities. Just at his word, they can be removed. That's something about this situation that the psalmist is speaking about, that he is in this position of complete dependence on God. Now, I know I'm speaking to Bostonians, so there's a sense in which everything I just said is the most foreign, foreign, weird thing you've ever heard. We have no concept of dependency to that degree, right? There's a sense in which there is no political candidate, there's no executive potentate who controls my life to that extent. I'm a very free man. If my boss even starts to forget how important I am at work, look out. I'm going to move my passive job seeking over to an active opportunity, call a few headhunters, and I am on my way. I'll be gone. Or... I'll just start my own business, right? I don't have to be dependent on this. No, nobody owns me. I'm not that dependent on my lively, for my livelihood, anything that we see here. And yet th- these verses remind us that actually we are that dependent upon Yahweh, the creator God of the Bible. He sits as the sovereign of the universe over everything, orchestrating it, that we look to him for what he can do. 
we're dependent upon him to give to us. And so our eyes are lifted up to look to him. So I say to us as 21st century Bostonians, think of how much that you enjoy that did not come from your hands. God, the sovereign of the universe, determined which family you would be born into. He determined into which gender, to which parents, at a particular month and year, that is when you were born. You did nothing to determine this, and yet your success is not an accident or chance that it played out. Think about your present job or the home that you occupy. These good gifts are not yours purely of your own doing. God has put you in a position to receive these things, no matter how vehemently you may try to deny it to the contrary. That month and year that you were born decided exactly when you would start school. It determined who your teachers were going to be, determined who your classmates are going to be. Based on who your teachers were, who your classmates were, set up a cohort of which in some ways you would be graded among that cohort. You would excel or fall behind based on that. And in essence, some of the content, you know, you never got to that last chapter in history class because of those knuckleheads you had in the same class with you, right? There's certain things you didn't get because of the individuals you were placed into in your life by God. All of those things determined then your future schooling, your future education, and eventually the outcomes that you would have in your career and the successes you enjoy. And yet, all of those things were decided before you took one breath outside of your mother's womb. You can't get the credit for that. You had nothing to do with it. The God of the universe decided those things for you and placed you exactly where he wants you to be so that you would be in the position you are right now today to be able to receive this from his hand. So don't miss it, friends. We are dependent on God as much as we try to deny it and look to the contrary in our current life. So we have this great God who's high and lifted up, who's over us, who has this level of dependence on us. So we would look to him and we would think, you know what? He is he's serious. I mean, this is power that we're talking to in the ultimate sense. And we might think that we are only going to receive scraps or perhaps just readiness to take on the capricious whims of a spoiled tyrant. We see that so many times in human history. But no, that's not what we see. Look at the end of verse 2. We await from him and can expect from him mercy. We look and look and look to this God and we find mercy. Now, don't get me wrong. We are helplessly dependent for God to turn to us and show us this mercy. But we also can know expectantly that that's what we're going to get from God is mercy. So what, what do we mean by this word mercy? So the idea of mercy through and through is about God's favor or kindness toward us. It's God doing for us what he didn't have to do just because he wants to. God doing what he didn't have to do just because he wants to. And really, we talk about mercy and grace. They're kind of two sides of the same coin in some perspectives. When we think about mercy specifically, the idea here is most specifically talking about God withholding from us what we actually deserve and doing that in a kind way. You think about all the times you should have gotten what you deserved in the situation in an ultimate sense and what God is doing for us. He's not giving you fully what you deserve, and that's an action of his love and his mercy toward us. So he withholds from us what we deserve, and we deserve really, really uh, a poor handling, if you think about it. One, because we're just creatures standing before this great creator of the universe, so you know you don't have any standing based on your own position. And then secondly, because we're actually really bad creaturely subjects. 
This God set up a law of the universe, a moral law of which we're to obey, and we're terrible at it. We're rebellious and warring. We're broken and betraying. So God not treating us like we deserve is a really big deal that he shows us mercy instead. But don't miss this. There's actually this positive element as well that we usually talk about grace. Not only is it that God doesn't squish us like the bugs that we are that we deserve, but it's actually that God elevates us. And he gives us good gifts in this life. And he gives us even more good gifts in the life to come. That's the God that we turn to who gives us this mercy. This is his mark that is how he responds to us. So when we look to God and he he gives us position, you're, you're left with this thought of why does God respond like this? I know what I'm like. I know where I fall short. But yet God shows me mercy? He does it because it's firmly rooted not in what people do, not in how you live up to it, but in God's disposition and gracious character. It's beyond any human calculation for how God does it. So we look to God for mercy, looking for it until it comes because we can do nothing to earn it. And grace is part of God doing what he doesn't have to do just because he wants to. So if you're hearing this and you're saying, okay, that sounds a little bit hard to believe. Or you're thinking, you know what, that's really something. Even if I've heard that before, it's really something to get my mind around that. Then you're really tracking with me. You're hearing me right on what I'm talking about in God's mercy. Which takes us really clearly to our next point, which is in verses 3 and 4, when it talks about really the craving we have for mercy. Or why do we want this mercy and need it? so badly. Why do we crave it as humans? It's innate. It's part of us. So I want to talk about cravings a little bit, and I have to add the disclaimer. I've, of course, never had the intense pregnancy cravings that so many of you have experienced. I can say I have been out looking for that last bit of uh, Starbucks Java chip ice cream, going to three or four stores, not finding it, and contemplating if I come home empty-handed without this, how that's going to go. So I know some about intensity of, of those kind of cravings. But the, the most intense uh, kind of hunger cravings I've had for myself happened in 2009. So my wife Katie and I uh, had the chance. We spent a month in Israel. And we traveled uh, around for about 10 days or so. And then we also dug at an archaeological site for about three weeks. Awesome experience. Loved it so much. Sites were amazing. The food was, was something. I mean, you had the fresh olives all these wonderful fruits and vegetables uh, in, in greater form than we have them here, and just falafels galore, you know? So it was an amazing, amazing place. But, you know, over that, that period of time, you come to see that there's something you might want else, uh, something else that might be craving. And it starts to come to your mind, and, you know, when you kind of get that desire, that idea in your head, how you can't, like, get rid of it sometimes, it kind of just takes on this bigger and bigger form, especially when you talk about food, Right? So it just starts taking up this more looming position. You know what would really be good right now? Yeah, that would be, be nice. I'm hungry. And then you kind of get back to whatever you're doing. And all of a sudden you kind of fixate on that again. You're like, yeah, actually, I can see it. Taste it a little bit. Getting kind of hungry. And then, you know, I'm riding around in these public buses around Israel and kind of bouncing on the road. And suddenly my mind kind of bounces back to, oh, you know what I'd really like to have? So... Have you ever heard of kosher? So Israel's pretty kosher. So, you know, I was an American in Israel for about a month, and I was dying for a cheeseburger. Okay? You cannot have a cheeseburger in Israel. It's just not going to happen. I mean, I went to the Golden Arches looking for a cheeseburger. And you know you can get a quarter pounder 
at the McDonald's in Israel, but you cannot get a quarter pounder with cheese in Israel, even at McDonald's. So as I was there, and this is continuing to come to mind, I mean, I am just, you know, the falafels are great. Love the olives. They are filling me up. I am up to here with this amazing food. But I really, really need a cheeseburger. So as I came home, Katie and I flew back, and my good friend picked us up in Chicago at the airport, and he said, oh, you guys are really jet-lagged and crazy. You guys need to stop anywhere. Didn't look at Katie, didn't beat around the bush. I said, I need a cheeseburger right now. So we went to Wendy's on the way home, and Wendy's hit the spot for a good enough cheeseburger for where I was at in that situation. So if you can feel that, that's, that's a context for really craving. I mean, I couldn't get any, anything like that uh, in Israel. Nothing would come close with some good old cow beef, with some cheese. You're not going to find it. It's not going to be an option. And, I mean, I could get lots of olives, fresh vegetables, falafels, but I have had my fill of those, and I was craving a cheeseburger's. Cheeseburger, maybe more, more than one. Uh, We as humans are in a similar craving for mercy. We can't get it anywhere else. Can't get it anywhere else than looking to God. And we sure have had had enough of other things. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. It says, Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. So the idea here is that we so badly want mercy because we have had our fill of scorn and contempt. We are rolling in scorn and contempt here in this life. And actually the language here in verse 4 kind of has some connotations of food satiating the throat. It's translated our soul has had more than enough. Uh, The idea here is really my cheeseburger analogy isn't too foreign to the text, as it's saying, look, you've had your fill of this all the way up to the throat is kind of the concept that it's coming for. And that's why we need mercy. So the first reason we crave it and need it so badly is because we've had enough of the scorn of the East. So I say the word scorn. The word is almost hurtful when you say it. Scorn is that scoffing mockery, or that derisive laughter that we all know so well from junior high. As we live our life, we can be torn down by the hateful scorn of those around us. We don't measure up. We cannot achieve. The output from our best efforts is still wildly short of the mark in many areas. It's in those moments of putting your full heart into something, all of your efforts and your beliefs, and you're being met with scorn so often in this life. You've taken the jump shot, finished that final bid on the piece of pottery, or handed in your paper that you've worked so many hours on and received on the other side of it that scornful laugh or that mocking tone. Scorn is directly opposed to mercy. Instead of withholding what we deserve for our feeble attempts, we are met with scorn, which is perhaps giving us more than what we even deserved for our failure. It's become taking our serious attempt and making it laughable. Do you feel this? Have you been in that situation? This is a common occurrence in human experience because people are not full of mercy. People who are on our same plane look at us and they oftentimes respond with scorn. And particularly this psalm looks to the idea of the community of faith as experiencing the scorn for the faith that we hold to. So even though these people on our same plane they stand over us in superiority at times to say, no, you don't measure up. That's not good enough. 
That's how people respond and look to us. Verse 4 goes on to say, uh, we receive this from a particular group of society, designating them as the E's, or we might call them the nonchalant people. This is a group that has existed in every society throughout time who ignores the requirements of God and believes that they will escape any judgment or culpability for this life. So they dole out the scorn on others instead of feeling the weight on their own shoulders to, fit, to measure up. So that we've had enough of that. We're dying for mercy, craving it as a different response. But secondly, we also crave mercy from God because we've had enough of the contempt of the proud. The contempt is mentioned in line with scorn, but it's also repeated in verses 3 and 4, emphasizing its presence in our lives. Contempt is that evaluation of your beliefs as utterly worthless. Can you see the head shaking when I say that? It's utterly worthless. I can remember standing in an an office meeting, listening to a, a general manager speak, and I can remember seeing the curve on his lips as he said, oh, you know about those, those Christians and their, their view of things. Shaking his head. That moment, my daydreaming shifted away. Focusing in again. I could feel my ears start turning red. I feel this sharpness in my chest. As you then look intently to hear the words, she shakes his head and just continues, those poor suckers that are Christians is hopelessly misguided in their archaic beliefs. Never, they would never stand up to the rigors of modern empirical science. And that look, not of hatred, just of what a complete waste of time. How could anyone believe these things? You can hear the air of prestige and arrogance that comes out often from the Oxbridge educa- educated and from those who have had high success in their careers. This is the voice of contempt. We can hear it in the voices of chambers of our capital, in the classrooms of our centers of learning, in the boardroom, and even sitting in Starbucks. And this verse speaks to the fact that we have had enough. No more of this contempt. So you can imagine, if we're getting all of this from all the people on our same plane, other humans who put themselves in that position, how odd that we hear scorn and contempt from them. And yet, what do we see from God? we see mercy. He comes to us and he turns to us in mercy. God is not like Queen Elizabeth II or President Trump in such a high position that it seems unlikely and improbable that he would have favor toward us. He's not the CEO or the chairman that doesn't see us or know our efforts and attempts to give us that generic and impassive thank you for your your efforts. No, he knows our efforts. He knows how bad we fail, how frail we are, He knows us for the small people that we really are, and yet he turns to us in mercy. Now, how can he do this? How can this be true? I want you to see how far God has turned toward us in mercy. He didn't stay enthroned so high and transcendent above us, although that is true for him. No, God came to us in the person of Jesus, and everything about the coming of Jesus to meet us in mercy. That is why Jesus came. God, who is far above and unlike us, came to be with us and among us so that he could bring to us mercy. Hear these words from a New Testament passage in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. I'll read these for us. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, because he's holy. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is how we are met by God. He comes in the person of Jesus to bring mercy right toward us. So Jesus knows us intently and intimately in our human frailty and fallenness. But now because of Jesus, we can pray Psalm 123 even more expectantly, even more confidently, knowing that the enthroned sovereign God who's high and different and far above us loves us enough to meet us in mercy, not scorn. He doesn't come to us in that way. He doesn't come to us bringing that derision, even though we so so most deserve it. No, we're met instead by mercy. And that's the big idea of this sermon. We will receive mercy and grace in God through Christ to help in our time of need. So the craving of mercy is satisfied only in God. We cry out to him, lifting our eyes to him, expecting the mercy that we know he will give us. So what does this mean? What is the application here? Two quick things. Number one, as as Hebrew passage points to, it says that we can attend to God in prayer. Hebrew 4 says we can pray expecting mercy from Jesus. We can pray extemporaneously, telling him our real words, real, real words to our real problems, knowing that he won't shoo us away, knowing that we don't have to use some kind of platitudes to speak to God. No, he is in the midst of our pain and our hurt, our shortcomings and our triflings, and God will meet us in mercy for us and for all those that we pray for. But then secondly, we look to God for our mercy. Our need for mercy can only be met by God. Contempt and scorn have, ha- have endless sources in our life. But mercy comes perfectly only in one, and that is God. If you don't, if you don't know mercy, you don't know God. If you don't know Jesus, you won't know mercy. It's that simple. So as we come and we see this contempt and scorn that's present in our life, there's a need to know Jesus, to know this mercy of our life. So we must turn to him and understand that. So I want to invite us to just acknowledge our need for mercy together. So I'm going to ask us all to close our eyes. We're going to pray to God silently together. Or just lead us in a few words of prayer. If you can hear these together, be thinking these to God, praying these to him. To you, O God, we lift our eyes. We know you are enthroned in the heavens. We look to you, O Lord, for you to have mercy upon us. We've had enough of scorn and contempt all around us. Please have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy. Amen. Your next step might be confessing that sin that's present, that's holding you back from mercy. Believing this and taking that next step to deal with that. Or it might be your next step might be saying, I don't know enough about this Jesus, but I need to know about this mercy. It's significant for me. So I'm going to speak to somebody around here, talk to one of the pastors, talk to one of us, find out more about this mercy. To these things, we can expectantly look to God to respond to us with mercy.